We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I told Charles, it's good. I'm going to try to make this message as long as possible. Maybe it'll work the opposite and we'll be short. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, but we're going to, I'm, I, my goal for this morning as we work our way through Ephesians chapter 1 is to just scratch, is just scratch on the surface. I, you've heard me use the term before, but just kind of like to prime the pump. Um, we're not going to dive into anything real deeply. We're just going to wander through it, and I'm going to try to be as swift as I possibly can. Because my hope is that at the end of this study, it's going to cause, not just today, but the next couple weeks, because we're going to continue the, stu the little mini-study, is that it will cause us to reevaluate and think and consider and study. What's our topic for the next couple weeks before we get into the book of Acts? It is prayers of the scriptures. This was prompted by many, many conversations, the last of which was Jim and I after church last Sunday. Um, good conversation, by the way, Jim. That was a blessing last Sunday. But one of the things that have come up repeatedly in my ministry over the years is this repeated question, it's a variety of questions, but repeated questions with regard to prayer. We've talked about prayer before. And one of the things I've always said is I'd love to do a study on the prayers of the scriptures. And I'm not going to do an exhaustive study in the next couple of weeks, but we're going to look at a few of them and uh, just wander through them. Some of them we've talked about before, we're going to talk about them again, because I think... My argument is, I think we have misunderstood prayer dramatically. And it's interesting, I've read a number of books on prayer over the years. Because I've always been intrigued on this whole thing that we call prayer, that the Bible calls prayer. It's always been intriguing to me. And I've read book after book after book about prayer, and most books about prayer I have found, I'm sure there are some exceptions out there, but most books I've read on prayer give a cursory look at Biblical prayer in context. And I say just cursory, just a, a glimpse at. And primarily, the books on prayer are focused on how you and I can pray better. And it's more about practical how-tos than actually looking at what the Bible actually gives as examples of prayers. And so, that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks just looking at biblical examples of prayers and considering them and being challenged by them, and, and asking ourselves with, to compare and contrast our praying with what we see in the Scriptures. Let me, before we get into the text, let me just say this. I was talking to somebody just yesterday about this. Not somebody in our church, but I said to the person, I said, you know, the older I get, the more convinced I become that we can know a lot about a person's spirituality by what they pray about and how they pray. I'm really convinced. And it's not because we've read our books on, on how-tos of prayers. It's because it reveals in a very real way our theology. It reveals in a very real way what we believe about the Trinity. It really reveals what we believe about man, ourselves and others around us. It reveals what we really believe about this world and the stuff of this world. It ultimately ends up being a revealer of our theology. What we hold dear. And so I think it's really appropriate that we take time and look at 
what the scriptures have to say about prayer. Not just in the actual teachings of prayer, which we'll probably get to as well, but in the examples. Because I think the examples are amazingly powerful. And, and if I may just say this, I think we will find, we're just going to look at a few of them, but I think you would find, if you do a more exhaustive study, you will find that the thread that I'm going to be talking about in our study and the few that we do look at will be interwoven completely in all of the prayers of the scriptures. Except for a few. Like you find the one guy praying to God saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not as one of these. You do understand that's not a really good prayer. In fact, that's a really horrific prayer. There are a few of those type of prayers in the scriptures that are given, that are presented in the scriptures, not as examples of how to pray, but anti-type prayers is what they really are. We won't look at those. I just referenced one. We'll leave the rest of those uh, as they are at this point. In order, in Ephesians chapter 1, though, in order for us to understand the prayer, we have to understand what comes before the prayer. So let's read the whole chapter, if you would follow along while I read it. And then we will explain why we're going to look at the beginning before we get to the prayer itself. Starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his great, glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. In him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is, guarantee, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I heard of your faith, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, I'm sorry, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, 
that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's an interesting text. Obviously, the prayer starts in verse 15, and it is interesting um, as you work your way through uh, verse, uh, the verses all the way through to the end, verse 23, it seems like the prayer kind of fades away. I mean, Paul doesn't end his prayer with a, a classic in Jesus' name, amen, does he? He really doesn't. In fact, it's kind of hard to figure out where the prayer ends, doesn't it? Isn't it? In some level, I wonder if the prayer doesn't end all the way through chapter 4, verse 21 or so. I wonder. It, it, because it just kind of just keeps on going after that. It's, it's, it's not that there's a big shift in, in, at 2, verse 1. So, you know, at least it makes it through the end of chapter 1. It may go well beyond that. Um, it could go all the way to 421, for all we know. Um, be that as it may, couple, we're just going to keep it in the first chapter for, for sake of discussion. Except to say this, what takes place in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 21, is building off of everything he just said in chapter 1. There's nothing different being presented afterward. So, certainly, if nothing else, it's an expansion of what takes place in chapter 2, in chapter 1. So it's interesting, when Paul in chapter 1 talks or prays for the Ephesian church, and by extension, for all believers, correct? When he prays for the Ephesian church, and by the way, I would say, just as an aside, he's praying for the believers of the Ephesian church. He's praying, in other words, for the true church in Ephesus, that is, the true believers. And the clue on this is verse 15. If you notice, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, unsaved people don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, according to the Scriptures, that all churches, there is, there is a group of people who are not, not saved people. It's, that's pretty clear in the Scriptures. So he's praying for the believers in the church, or the true church. It is interesting, though, before he gets to the prayer in verse 15, we have first the introduction, verses 1 and 2 of the whole book, who Paul is, who the believers are, and you see in verse 1, they are the faithful in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, right? And then he, he, he says to them, Grace and peace to you from, our, uh, from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. From there, from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 1, verse 14, he gives to the Ephesian church a discussion that is foundational for the prayer. It's absolutely essential we see this. In other words, in 3 through 14, what Paul presents is this incredibly intense and intensive theological foundation. What does he say? Again, we're just going to fly through it, but he says, Blessed be the God. He starts out with, with a blessing to God, right? a praise, a glorification of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He moves beyond it and says, who has blessed, or builds upon them, I'm sorry, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
So right off, in the, right off the, the bat, right in the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul begins to make very important, important biblical, inspired declarations, which you obviously find in this book, but you also find it in many, many other books of the, of the New Testament. Do you not? As a matter of fact, they're even in the Old Testament. He says, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if I may just change the wording a little bit, has blessed us. Who is He blessed? Believers. Those who have faith. Or who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. What has He blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing. Where are those spiritual blessings coming from? In the heavenly places. Right? It's all the blessings that are in the heavenly places He has poured on us. By the way, if I may just throw this out there, that is very little different from what was descriptively presented in Genesis chapter 2. Did not God give Adam and Eve every blessing? Didn't they? Didn't He? Every blessing. That was all physical blessing in the, in the, in the, uh, in the garden, right? He gave them everything they needed and more. It's just a physical picture of the spiritual blessing we receive today. He has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. That is, a true believer, one who is faithful in Jesus Christ, is a, not will be, not may be, but is a recipient. If you're a believer, He's declaring to you that we are a recipient of how much blessing? All spiritual blessings. That are where? They're in, in Christ Jesus. That are in what? In the heavenly places. We've got it all. You're, now, I'm not being Joel Osteen here. I'm making a really strong declaration of a difference. What I will say, though, we're not going to get into it right now too far, but there's a study right there in itself, isn't it? Like, what are these blessings he's talking about? So we read the passage and we just go beyond it. We say, oh yeah, we got all the spiritual blessings. And they are. And they are. And he's going to tell us a little bit about it. But he's, he's barely going to scratch the surface. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is one of the spiritual blessings, isn't it? We who are what? Naturally? Holy or unholy? Absolutely unholy. Blameless or full of blame? Full of blame. Spiritual blessing. Holy and blameless before Him. That's stunning. He goes on in his theological discourse. In love He predestined us for the adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Another blessing, right? Predestined and adopted. We who once were far off, He has drawn near. He adopted us as sons. We're family. I want you to notice it goes on, I'm going to read it again, in love He predestined us, verse 5, for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of His will, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, which he has blessed, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So again, we're just being real brief. Prime in the pump. Prime in the pump. You'll notice, what does He say? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He save us? Why did He adopt us? For His glory, for the praise of His glory, right? To the praise of His glorious grace. That is, that we praise Him by praising the grace that He gives to us, right? We recognize the grace, we rejoice and praise and and, and bring up much praise regarding the grace of God, which is a focus upon the God of grace, correct? And then He says, with which He's blessed us. In the beloved. And the beloved is referring to the Godhead. He's blessed us, which goes back to He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There's some more of the spiritual blessing. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Now we're starting to talk about sacrifice, aren't we? He's a sacrificial lamb. We have redemption, blessing, through His blood. And He, he builds on it further. The forgiveness of our what? Our trespasses, they're washed away. Talk about another great study to study what the Scriptures say about what that means. The forgiveness of our trespasses and what trespasses really are. Again, according to the riches of His grace, which He just talked about. Which He lavished upon us. Stop on that for a second. What an interesting word. Isn't it an interesting phrase? Which He, What? Lavished on us. Does the King James use a different word, Jim? Abounded. I love the word lavish. It's just, it's so graphic. When I, when I was studying the text, one of the things I thought of was, like, I see people sometimes at a restaurant, they'll get a bagel, and they put, was it cream cheese or sour cream they put on it? Cream cheese. I don't like either one, so it's okay. Um, but I always chuckle about this when I hear people put a cream cheese on it. They say, well, it, it doesn't have as much fat in it as butter does, so I can put twice as much. Um, half the amount of fat, twice as much, doing the same thing, right? But what do they do with the cream cheese? They lavish it on. And what they do, so obviously, not only do they, do they say, well, there's, there's not as much fat, so, so they put more, they don't put double the amount, usually they put like four or five times the amount on, don't they? Sometimes? I mean, it's like thick sometimes, isn't it? Interesting. What are they doing? They're lavishing it on it. But, but another way that we can think about lavishing is, is when we just find something that is so enthralling to us, so amazing to us, we just can't stop what? Talking about it, gazing upon it, considering it, remembering it, dwelling on it, cogitating. Use whatever word you want to. That's the picture. He doesn't give us, in other words, He doesn't give us enough grace just to be saved. The picture is He lavishes it on us. He inundates us with it. It's a stunning description. Again, in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. How much does He give us? How much does He lavish it? It's according to the what? 
the riches of His grace, right? Well, how much grace does God have? Infinite, right? The amount of grace that He lavishes on His children is the equivalent of how much He has. That's the point. And it's infinite. If I may just pause this for a second, this is one of those areas that I find Christians falsely falling on their faces on over and over and over again. We do it, don't we? Well, if only this wasn't here in my life then, or if only this wasn't going on then, or if only God would just change that then, it all says one thing. God haven't, hasn't lavished His grace on me. That's what it means. That's what we're saying. God has not, but if only He would lavish His grace on me. He's somehow holding back, which is exactly what Adam and Eve were saying about God in the garden, wasn't He? Weren't they? He doesn't want what's best for me. He's holding back. He's lavished it on us. And He's lavishing these riches of His grace upon us is coming out of the infinite stores. He goes on, again, starting in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. So He, he tells us how He lavishes, lavished it upon us, right? He gave us wisdom and insight. Now it is in the past tense, so it's referencing our salvation, isn't it? Primarily. He lavished upon us the richness of His grace to what extent? Well, here He gives us the evidence of how much grace He gave us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He'll say it next chapter, won't He? He'll say it next chapter. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. He lavished the riches of His grace upon us so much that we gained wisdom and insight. But wait a second, we were dead. No matter how much you lavish something upon dead people, they're still what? Dead. But His lavishing is radically different. It's a quantum difference. It takes someone from death to life and introduces them to something they could not understand at all. What is it? Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. His purpose is what? That we would be what? That we would be saved. That we would be redeemed. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, which gives us clear indication of what He's talking about here, as a plan for the fullness of the time of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. That's talking about salvation. It also includes our sanctification. It also includes our ultimate what? Glorification. Because he says right there at the end, in verse 10, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on the earth. All things ultimately completely united to Him. That's how much He lavishes His grace upon us. He goes on in verse 11. In Him, 
And you notice the in hymns keep showing up. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And then he says, so, so in verse 11, he's saying, we, another blessing, we've obtained what? An inheritance. Now, we know according to Scripture that that's not something we're, we're due, right? We know it already in chapter 1 because we are what? We are adopted. Which means we're not natural born, right? So it's an extra blessing that we actually get, it was a blessing we get adopted, it's an extra blessing we receive an inheritance that doesn't belong to us. Because especially in biblical era, who got, who got the inheritance? The oldest or firstborn, right? Well, who's the firstborn? Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 1. Christ. What does he say? In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So the ultimate goal of all this and all these blessings that you and I are receiving is what? For His glory again. To, to be, that we might be the pray, to the praise of of His glory. That's the whole drive of this theological discussion. That the end result of this truth being proclaimed, these realities, not just being proclaimed, but being realized, because that's what God does, is what? That He is praised and glorified. In Him, verse 13, in Him you also, because verse 11 and 12 are talking about the apostles and disciples, but he goes on and says the same thing for everybody else. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, another blessing. What's the blessing? It's twofold. What was it? Sealed, which implies what? Salvation and, and, and security, right? And what? You receive the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, which you just talked about, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the actual possession of it. And again, what does he say? To the praise of his glory, which is the ultimate goal, and the intermediate goal, and the beginning goal. It's everything. Correct? And that brings us to the prayer. That discussion, verses 3 through 14, is the absolute essential thing that needs to be understood by the Ephesian church for the prayer of Paul to make any sense. You and I, same thing. If we don't understand verses 3 through 14, the prayer of verses 15 and following will be meaningless. It will be words on a page. But when we get the depth and we begin to understand and comprehend the beauty of the blessing that we, are, we have and are receiving in Christ Jesus, verses 3 through 14, then verse 15 and following is a game changer. Now remember what I started out by saying that our praying oftentimes reveals our theology? Here's what's troubling to me, and this should not be new to you because I've said it so many times. We pray about so many horizontal things. 
and we're so hot after praying for these horizontal things, aren't we? I use I capture all in Aunt Melba's big toe, don't I? We are so hot and heavy praying about those things all the time, and 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 they they populate our prayers. Why? Because we don't see our praying in light of verses three through fourteen. That's why. We don't see our praying in light of the God of 3 through 14. We don't see our praying in light of the blessings of 3 through 14. We don't see our praying, we don't consider our praying in light of the goal of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So now we just covered all of 3 through 14. We don't see our prayer again in light of the God of 3 through 14. I'm going to say it again. We don't see it in light of the blessing of three, the blessings, plural, all the blessings of three through fourteen, and we don't see our praying and consider our praying in light of the purposes of three through fourteen. If you didn't get those three statements, then you missed the whole message. Just wanted to say that. God, blessings, purpose. That's absolutely essential. At the same time, when, when by the Spirit our hearts are caught up in 3 through 14 of chapter 1, what Paul reveals there, it will dramatically change our praying. Because when our hearts are caught up in 3 through 14, our praying will reflect 3 through 14. In other words, we'll be praying according to God according to the blessings, and we're praying according to the purposes when our hearts are caught up in 3 through 14. And that's exactly what we find in 15 and following in Paul's prayer. He is absolutely caught up in 3 through 14, and so in 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 23, if I'm right on that one, in verse 23, all that pours out of Paul's prayer is what? God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Blessings in the heavenly places that are pouring out to us, to the Ephesian church, as he prays for them. And purpose. To the glory of God. To the praise of his glory. That is what's going to pour out of Paul's prayer. Because for Paul, the prayer isn't the central thing. The truth is the central thing, 3 through 14. So in verse 15, he starts off by saying, for this reason. What's he talking about? Well, immediately right there it says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, and you would, if you're not careful, you would just say, because Paul heard about their faith and their love, he prays this way. No. No, 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 no. That's secondary. What we have when he says, because I heard of the, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for, toward all the saints, what's he talking about? Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints is because of 3 through 14. Does that make sense? Why would the people that are in the church at Ephesus have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love towards all the saints? Because of God, the Godhead, because of the blessings they've received, all the blessings in the heavenly places, 
Why would they? And because it, for the purpose of the praise to the glory of God, right? Why would they love the, have love towards all the saints? Same reason. That, in other words, the end of verse 15 is just the evidence that 3 through 14 is real in them. Make sense? Really crucial we wrap our brains around that. Paul doesn't get to 14 and just lay it aside and pray for them. Not by any stretch of the imagination. 3 through 14 is going to absolutely, in a good way, infest all the, all the prayer. In a good way. So let's listen to it. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, and if, again, if I may just pause on, on verse 15 briefly before I get to verse 16, why would, they, why would they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it was given to them. That's really clear, Ephesians chapter 2. Why would they have, they have love towards all the saints? Because they've received the blessings from the heavenly places. We love because He first loved us, 1 John 3. There it is. And because, in other words, because verses 3 through 14 is real in them, he prays this way. For this reason, then we jump to verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Not thanks that they're nice people. Not thanks that they're doing a good work. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't cease to give thanks for them, remembering, in their, in, in, remembering you in my prayers, the primary reason why he's giving thanks is because God has been faithful to what he, who he is, what he's promised, right? 3 through 14. So he's giving thanks for, for them. Why? Because they're an example of the effect of the truth applied. That's why he's giving thanks to God for them. They're a further example. This is what, when God promises, this is what happens. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. So his first opening salvo of the prayer after the thankfulness that God has worked in them up to this point is what? Verse 17, he prays what? That God, who is this God? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. Well, who's he, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? That the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Which is a really weird statement in most of our theologies. You know why it's weird? Because he's writing to people who are faithful in Jesus Christ, right? If they're faithful in Jesus Christ, they have who? The Holy Spirit, right? They already have the Holy Spirit, don't they? If they're faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody's faithful without the Holy Spirit, are they? This is really weird in our way of thinking. Wait a second. He's asking that God will give them the Holy Spirit. They already have the Holy Spirit. Now, at one level, certainly we can recognize what he says here, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. 
is talking about certainly growing in knowledge of Him, right? But on a more basic level, He is asking that, the, that God would give them the Spirit. But they already have the Spirit, right? They used to always warp my brain. Kind of like when people pray, God, we pray that you'll be with us. I used to warp my brain. Like, why are you praying that way? He already promised that. Hasn't he? Why are you praying that? You know why, why Paul's praying this? Because there's more, no more beautiful prayer than praying what God has promised. There's no more powerful prayer than praying what God has promised to do and keep doing. And if I may just give you an intro to almost all the prayers of the Scripture, that's exactly what the prayers are doing. Time after time after time, they are praying that God will do what He said He would do. You'll see it everywhere. You see, as we've talked about many times before, faith has to have an object, and that object is what God has said and who God is, right? what God has revealed about himself and about his plan. So, a prayer of faith is a prayer with regard to who God is and what he has revealed, right, or promised. So, there is no more beautiful prayer than praying according to what God has promised to do. And it's a very confident prayer, isn't it? God, we pray that you'll give us the Spirit. Well, he, he has, he's promised to, and, he, and he's promised what? He'll never, what? Leave us nor forsake us, like, Really? What a great prayer. God, do what you're going to do what you promised. And then specifically, the idea is that the Spirit will open our eyes to see what? What we can only see by the Spirit. And again, what does the Spirit promise to do in the life of His children? We have been promised that the Spirit would do what? Reveal. That's what He does. That's what He does. So again, that the Lord, I'm sorry, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Another interesting warp of the brain, if we think typically, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Before we were saved, was were our hearts light or dark? Dark. After we're saved, what happens to our heart? What does God do in our salvation process? He gives us a new heart. Right? Doesn't the Scripture say that, right? All things have become new. What's that, Tom? Old things have passed away, but all things have become new. So light is now where darkness was. Was Paul praying once again that God will do what he promised to do? Isn't he? That the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, which is the opposite of, if I could be as weird as possible, and darkened. Right? Which obviously is not a word, right, Tom? Darkened is the word, but you get the point. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's he praying for Paul? What is Paul praying for the Ephesian church here? In verse 18, after he says, having your eyes of your heart enlightened, he says, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you to. And the hope is what? To the praise, because it's talking about purpose, the praise of his glory, right? 
And then we said over and over and over again through chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I pray for you that you will, in an ever-growing, ever-deepening understanding, by the Spirit at work in you, do what He's promised to do, open the eyes of your heart, so that you will see the hope to which He called you. And He goes on. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance? He just talked about inheritance twice. And now he goes back to it in the prayer. That's why I say you can see the strong connection between 3 through 14 to the prayer itself. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I said when we got the inheritance, I said, what a study that is, right? Didn't I say that? What a rich study that would be. And what does he say? I pray that God will enlighten your hearts, open the eyes of your heart, as it were, so that you will what? comprehend what? The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice, it's not your inheritance here He's talking about, is it? Whose inheritance is He talking about? His. Do you realize what He just said? He shifted it from 3 through 14 a bit from your inheritance to you being the inheritance. Whose inheritance? His inheritance. Specifically, Christ's inheritance. That's who you are. And so, doesn't deny the inheritance talked about in verses 3-14. through However, here, he talks about His glorious inheritance in the saints. And the idea is, what a rich study that is, being the inheritance as well. Being Christ's inheritance. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? What does He want us to understand as our, the eyes of our heart are, are opened? Again, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? Think about what He just said. He prays that the Ephesian church, the believers of the Ephesian church, will, will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they will be able to understand what is un understandable. Not comprehensible. That's what he just prayed. What is, in other words, that we'll comprehend, we'll have knowledge, we'll have the knowledge of the greatness of his power, but he just said it was immeasurable. We'll be able to comprehend something that is immeasurable. That's by the Spirit. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Now, stop for that one for just a second, right there at the beginning of 19, if you would. Here is the, the crux of my problem with the way we typically pray. We pray about so many horizontal things, don't we? We pray about so many horizontal things. They're not, there's not a focus on God, except that He does things. They're not focused on the amazing blessings. And they're not focused on the, on the purpose. Right? And so, in verse 19 again, think about that in light of verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His, of his power toward us who believe? Are we not 
finding ourselves as we're praying all these horizontal prayers that aren't reflective of verse 3 through 14, aren't we almost in denial of this thing that verse 19 talks about? The immeasurable power? Are we not in denial of what is the immeasurable greatness of, of His power toward us who believe? We're asking for this, and He's saying, I got this for you. Well, I just want Aunt Melba's big toe fixed. And He's like, are you kidding? I saved you to the glory to, to glorify me to the praise of my glory. That's what I saved you for. And you're after Aunt Melba's big toe? Do you see the contrast there? It's dramatic. The contrast is actually stunning. Even if, I may, if I may meddle for just a second, I know some people will really get their hackles up on this one. And I'm okay with that. But it's stunning to me how much we pray over even serious things. Even serious horizontal things. It's not with a focus on God. It's not with a focus on His amazing riches, right? And it's not focused on, on His purpose. But we pray for all these things, like, like, like so-and-so is going through a horrible situation. Please pray for them. And we pray for them. And we are doing that in total denial of, of the vast, immeasurable wealth of what He has for us. And in effect, we miss the point. If I may just create a, hor a horrible situation. Just, let's say I was driving to work today. Driving to church, I'm sorry, today. Which is, I work. It's work for me. I'm driving to the church service today to preach and present to you. And on the way here, I have a head-on collision with a Mack truck. I'm alive. They pulled me out of the wreckage. I'm mangled. I'm in a coma. It's really ugly. It's like moment to moment whether Steve's going to live. You know what most Christians would do? They'll come together and pray for what? Pray for healing. Pray that God will work miraculously and heal me, right? That's, that's the typical prayer, right? Let's say God does. Revelation. Ready? I want to just reveal something to you. God heals me. Two years later, I'm back on my feet. I'm walking back in here. First time preaching in two years. You know what? I'm now 62 years old. I'm 60 now. Then I'll be 62. I'm still going to die. You do realize that, right? If Christ doesn't return, none of us are getting out of this place alive. Right? I also know what God says in the Scriptures. He says my days are numbered, right? I'm not going to die a moment before his, my number comes up as God has planned it, right? I'm not going to die a moment after. People ask me all the time with my running, are you running to stay you know, healthy so you live longer? No, I can't live a moment longer than what God has ordained for me. <laughs> can't. I can run all I want. When my, when my time comes, it's done. When, when, when the time God has ordained for me to die comes, I'm done. We, I'm choosing this horrific situation. Mack truck, Steve, coma, every bone in his body broken. Moment to moment. At the end of the day, whether I live or die, what does Paul say? Whether I live or die, what? It's all for Christ. 
Isn't that what it says? Why isn't that our prayer? Why isn't that? Here's Steve in a hospital bed, critical care, a mess, every bone in his body broken. You can't even recognize him because he's so swollen. And we sit there and we just pray that God will heal him. Now, whether I live or whether I die, it's Christ. Isn't it? Right? This is a moment in time, friends. This life is, a, is, is, is the Bible says, is what? It's a vapor. It's here at this moment and then gone. And most of us, or some of us anyway, our vapors are getting pretty scarce. I know for me, I'm 60 now. Three score and ten is what the Bible says. Bless you if I live longer than that. It's getting a little scarce for me already. Why is it our focus is, is on this life? Here. Why is that? What does 19 say again? And, and what is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us? Who this is what he's praying for, for the Ephesian church, that they'll comprehend this. And do you think that if they comprehend this by the Spirit at work in them, that they will be praying? If Paul is shipwrecked, that he will be rescued? You do remember when Paul was going off to Rome, what did the church do? They begged him what? Not to go. And what did Paul say? Because they said, if you go, they're going to kill you. And what did Paul say? Shut up already. I'm going. If I die, I die. But I'm going to glorify God. Who cares? You know why I said that? 3 through 14. That's why he said it. He was being driven by the truth and the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the Trinity, and the beauty of the riches that God has lavished upon him. He's enthralled with the purpose of why he was saved the praise of his glory. And that's all that matters. That was it. Again, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now in verse 20, he explains in a deeper way, verse 19, in his prayer. What did he say? He talked at the beginning of 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Well, what is this immeasurable power that he's talking about that he, by the Spirit, wants us to be enlightened about in his prayer? Well, how, how great is this greatness of his power toward us who believe? It's the same power that he worked, verse 20, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Verse 20. He wants us to comprehend the immeasurable power that is coming from the Godhead as part of the riches of heaven toward you and I, and what kind of power is that He's sending our way? It's the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead and all the ramifications of that, conquering sin and Satan and death. And we dink around with Aunt Melba's big toe. 
insanity. He goes on in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Talking about in glory. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So at the end of, of this section that we call Paul's prayer, he wraps it up with this statement in verse 22-23, and he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him what? As head over all things, as the one who has who is head over all things, which is a veiled statement to Matthew, what? 28, the Great Commission. All authority, all power has been given to, to you, to, to me, he says, that Jesus says. Again, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. He has all authority, all power over all things. And he gave the one who has all authority, all power over all things to who? To the church. Right? You see that? To the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And we're worked up over Aunt Melba's big toe. Or Steve's collision with a Mack truck. We're the body of Christ. What a blessing. What a stunning blessing that is from the heavenly places. And the greatest blessing of all, isn't it? That the one who has all authority is our head. He is our head. To the praise of His glory. And the body exists for the praise of His glory. Our focus is this. And I want to be careful how I word this. Our focus is not to pray better. I want to be very careful about this. Our focus is not to pray better. Your focus is not, well, if Steve has an accident on the way home from church today with a Mack truck and is in a coma, my wife's probably freaking out right now on the phone. No, she's not. I gotta pray better and pray that God is glorified and 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 that 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 the riches of His grace will pour out not just to Steve, but because of Steve's potential dying, that it'll pour out to the rest of us and all the rest, and we'll be we'll be brought closer to Christ through even His death or whatever the case may be. No, that's not that's not where we come from. We will fail miserably if we come from that. Come to that end, I mean. You know what Paul's calling us to here in chapter 1 of Ephesians? He's calling us to 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14. That's what he's calling us to. You see, the prayer of Paul in 15 through 23 is just a skinning out. This is what 3 through 14 look like. This is what 3 through 14 in our lives will look like. This is what the, the deep truths of, of verses 3 through 14 will, when they, by the Spirit, abide in our hearts, everything will change. My view of life will change. My view of what's valuable will change. 
my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my longings, my fears. Everything will change. When I understand 4 through 13, or 3 through 14, I'm sorry, when I, when I begin to comprehend by the Spirit, 3 through 14, my praying will change. I will find it rich, not frivolous, to pray for God's glory in the midst of something I can't comprehend. I will find myself no longer praying that so-and-so will live. I'll find myself impelled by the truth, informed by the truth, and the Spirit using the truth to pray for that person, whether they live or die, it'll be for Christ. That's what the Scriptures say. Whether they live, it'll be for Christ. Whether they die, it'll be for Christ. Whether they are comfortable or whether they suffer, it'll be for Christ. We pray that the suffering will be what? Eased or removed or shortened. Wait, where do we get that from? That's not coming out of the Scriptures. Instead, we ought to be praying in their suffering that Christ will be magnified. Isn't that 3 through 14? In their suffering that they will discover in a deeper way the riches that are in, the, in store for them now and in the future. Is that not what the Scriptures say? In their suffering that they will discover the beauty of Jesus Christ is better than ease. Isn't that exactly what Paul says at the end of verse, chapter, chapter 4 of 14? Of, I'm sorry, chapter 4 of Philippians? Isn't that exactly what he says? I've learned the secret of contentment. Whether I have everything or nothing, whether I'm hungry or full, whether I'm free or I'm in prison, I can what? Our texts say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which literally means I can glorify Christ in all of that because He strengthens me. How does He strengthen me? All the riches that are in heaven. <laughs> My goodness. And He gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all of that. And we pray quite to the contrary if we're hungry. Oh, just give us food. If we're in prison, we think it's wrong. Free me. When we hear about persecuted Christians overseas, we pray, oh God, please take away the persecution. Really? They don't pray that way. And every persecuted Christian I've ever talked to has told me, do not pray that way. Pray that we will know Jesus and glorify Him in the midst of the persecution. Whew! Why? Because they get 3-14. through 14. We get caught up in all the wrong things. The most beautiful prayers we can pray. The most beautiful prayers we can pray are what God has already revealed. What He's told us, He's promised. What He's revealed about Himself and the purpose, the praise of His glory. And who cares if Aunt Melba's big toe is healed if it's not for the praise of His glory? What good is that? What good is it? I'm just curious. What real good is that? 
if we are created for his glory, then what's the point of healing Aunt Melba's big toe or Steve's broken body after the Mack truck hits him if God isn't glorified? And if that isn't the very purpose for it, then we're all going to die. We're just grass. It's here today, withers tomorrow. We're pretty insignificant. Aren't we? The only significance at all is that we are, by God's, the riches of God's grace, we are part of the body of Christ. But that's all what? The riches of His grace. And He's the what of that body? He's the head. Who gets, who's supposed to get praise? Glory? Christ, the head. What a beautiful place. 3 through 14. It's the essential key to all of it. So, our goal again is, as Paul has laid out so clearly, 3 through 14, to know Christ, to know the Godhead, to understand the riches, and for all to be to the praise and glory of God. And I think if we believe that, it will change our prayers. Our theology inevitably shows up in our prayers. It inevitably shows up in our prayers. Paul's prayers are very different from any prayers we ever hear, aren't they? Radically different. That's not because Paul's radically different. It's because he's got the truth. He believes the truth. He clings to He clinged to the truth, whatever the word is. Cling to the truth. Transform him. That's what the Spirit does. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we get so easily distracted. The cares of the world come in so easily. <clears throat> the pressures of the world, the temptations of the world, the fatal flaws of this world, even down to our sicknesses, illnesses, injuries. It is a fallen world. We are in fallen bodies. And yet, you have said so much about you, about your blessings, about your church, about the believers, the faithful ones. I pray, Lord, you will work in our lives, open the eyes of our hearts, so that we will know what is the hope to which we've been called, and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Help us. In your name I pray. Amen.